though it might be to imagine now in these days of superfast broadband and instant access to information, the spread of the new wave of British heavy metal was very slow. This was because there were only two principal sources of information about bands and releases available to fans, radio and the music papers. BBC Radio 1 had cottoned on to a gap at the heavier end of the market and they launched the Friday Rock Show in November 1978, starting at 10pm every Friday and hosted by the hugely enthusiastic Tommy Vance. The radio show was extremely influential. By calling in bands to record live sessions, the programme produced a catalogue of highly bootlegged recordings. At that time, there were very few local radio stations that took a chance on this kind of music. And in the northeast, we were extremely lucky and immensely proud to have Metro Radio's The Hot and Heavy Express that I hosted and brought into parlance. The Hot and Heavy Express was my baby. We started off playing rock music around about 1976, and we grew the show from a one-hour thing to a four-hour show on a Saturday night from 10 through till 2 in the morning, and Rock with Robson, an additional show, and Bridges playing the later kind of Floydy, Dire Straity kind of rock on the other channel. So we had a lot going on, and we were desperate to plug new music. It was vital for us to give them the oxygen where they could thrive. With the exception of nine-year-old Janie McKenzie, Bernadette Mooney was only one of two women to record for Neat Records with her band War Machine. At the time, there weren't many women on the scene, especially in the Northeast, but her aggression and ferocity shunned the perception that heavy metal is a man's game. Bernadette was not only an avid hot and heavy listener, but appeared on the show several times. Everybody used to listen to it who wasn't heavy metal because Alan Robson was like the king of the radio show then and if you got on his show you were like famous. When he heard our album, which I think Les sent them, he absolutely loved it. So he would play it every week and on the nights so that we knew we were going to get played, everybody used to sit around the radio waiting. Then Alan actually asked me if I would come in and host a couple of shows. Got on really well with Alan and we did have quite a laugh and he was always a gentleman and he was really keen to push the band and get people to hear the music. Atom Crafts demolition man Tony Dolan also recalls being on the show. When we finished the recordings, they gave us a demo tape of the album and said, OK, we're going to drop you off at Metro Radio because you're interviewing with Alan Robson and he's going to play stuff from the album. And it was like, oh, my God, Alan Robson, we're on the Hot and Heavy Express. And it was like, wow, it's somebody you listened to religiously back then because other than Top of the Pops or if you were lucky on the old Grey Whistle test, the radio was Friday Rock Show with Tommy Vance or the Metro's Hot and Heavy Express with Alan Robson. That was where we got all of our news on metal and what was happening and and stuff like that. And so all of a sudden we were going to be interviewed by Alan Robson and he was going to play our music on the radio. So it was like, oh my God, we have made it. We are KISS. We are KISS. Alongside radio, the other avenue for music news was the weekly music papers, the heaviest of which was Sounds, 
with Melody Maker, Record Mirror and the New Musical Express all playing their part to varying degrees. Although it was Sounds who first noted the groundswell of hard rock and heavy metal bands, and its editor, Alan Lewis, who'd given a name to the movement, the new wave of British heavy metal. It wasn't a paper with any specific interest in the genre as such. Its aim was to cover music in its widest sense, thus maximising sales. Some of its writings and writers could be pretty hostile towards a form of music which, certainly back in the early 80s, was often seen as, at its best, a pointless noise, and at worst, the bastion of puerile, knuckle-dragging Neanderthal males. Certainly this seemed to be the NMA's viewpoint. Sounds enlisted Northeast correspondent Ian Ravendale, who was working on Bedrock, a BBC Radio Newcastle production. Ravendale set to work on sharing with readers what was happening in the region. I did a lot of reviews of local bands because that's something we'd done on Bedrock and I wanted to carry on doing that. And Jeff Barton was very supportive with that and sounds were were actually covering more local music than the other four music magazines together. Jeff Barton sort of ran with it and turned it into his own really and got me to cover literally all of the Northeast rock bands. I suppose, left to my own devices, I probably wouldn't have covered them, but with sounds being a rock paper, Jeff was very keen for me to do as much of that as possible, really, which I did. Kerrang appeared in July 1981, an offshoot of sounds and the first real rock magazine in the UK. The first issue was like a two-in-the-water job, written by Barton alone. It sold well, it went on to become a fortnightly and then a weekly. It tended to be much more rock than metal orientated at first, and it wasn't afraid to put the boot in if it didn't like a release or band. Kerrang's Lady Killers feature which focused on women in rock, although mostly through centrefold pin-up images where trailblazing female musicians were portrayed as sex symbols, it did help to launch international careers. Having featured bands like Girls School and Rock Goddess, Bernadette Mooney, frontwoman of War Machine, was approached by the magazine. Well, obviously I went in with no makeup on, my hair a mess and had to go with my stuff there to get ready. And Bon Jovi comes in, asked me, can I have this eyeliner? And I went, take it and turned round and had no makeup on, so I didn't even look at him. Then I got all my makeup done and my hair, went round to have a look to see if he was there and he had gone, which I was devastated about. Then I went into this big room, which had all the backdrops down and everything. Did the photo shoot with Ray. I think it lasted probably about an hour or more. I didn't get to pick which photo was going. The outfit I was wearing, which was quite daring, was something that I made myself, <laughs> being a costume designer. And I wanted to have something a little bit different. So that's why I wore that. And obviously he liked that as well, because it was something probably nobody else would be wearing. Though I think I did get a bit of inspiration off shoe, but <laughs> it was like a skirt with tassels and studs. 
Obviously, Shay didn't have this. She just had this tassels in little leather waistcoat with a zipper I had made. Just like leather wristbands, basically. And obviously, the 80s hair. The very dark makeup. I think I had dyed my hair black. It was either red or black. It was all different colours then. I thought I needed to look more powerful as a female singer rather than glamorous. So that's why I went for all the studs and everything. My mum was just like so proud. She worked at the police station at the time and I think she had told every single policeman that was in this magazine. So I think half of the police station had the magazine. So she was going around buying it for everybody. So there was probably no magazines left in Mall's End. When you're number one in the chart, it's short-lived for that week and then somebody else is in the week later. So after it all died down, that was it. It was a small scene with so many bands who were competing for their 15 minutes of fame. Jealousy amongst musicians was pretty common, and at times, even the label Neat Records would play up rivalries just for a bit of publicity, particularly with Venom and Raven. But if it wasn't your band getting the press coverage, then that was it, as Tony Demolition Mandolin explains. You had a small local sort of personality thing, briefly though it was, because that kind of thing turns to hit quite quickly. It's another one of those things a lot of people from the north have experienced when they've managed to step up a little bit is there were so many bands at that time all desperately trying to make it that it was encouraging in the local scene. But once you step forward, like you were on a Kerrang cover or you were spreading Kerrang or sounds or Melody Maker or anything like that, then all of a sudden they didn't like you anymore because you'd broke out, if you like. So then there, there was a kind of weird attitude towards you. So it's like I, I used an analogy before when I've spoken about if I went to go into Trillions, which it is now, which was the Jubilee of the Man of the Moon, you would go downstairs into the bar area. Now, if I walked downstairs and just walked to the bar and didn't make any eye contact and didn't say hello to anybody, they'd all be looking at me going, look at that wanker. He thinks he's so cool. But if I'd gone downstairs and said hi to everybody, they'd go, look at him saying hello to everybody. They'd be like, look at me, look at me. Isn't he thinking he's so cool? So you kind of couldn't win, really, you know? Rivalry aside, publications like Sounds or Kerrang! were there to help spread the word. Even the small ads at the back would be a treasure trove of information regarding both self-pressed releases and gig dates as bands zipped up and down the country to the many clubs that hosted live bands. For bands starting out, the 60s and 70s were the time of the working man's clubs, and most bands cut their teeth on the club circuit, with probably the most notable exception being Venom, who probably would have been paid off immediately. Of course, you couldn't play your own stuff. You had to play covers. Bit of Elvis. Bit of what was in the charts. John Gallagher of Raven. It was interesting, especially since a lot of the clubs were down in the southern end. So you'd be playing, you know, New Bottle and Shot and Colliery and Easington Colliery and Sunderland and around that. And of course, when you're down there, if they found out you were from Newcastle, and here's the boys from Newcastle. So it was an education. We learned how to handle a, an audience that wasn't interested or were, you know, violently opposed to you. And yeah, they tried to change their attitude or you rile them up more. We went round and played this circuit. Now, previous to us, and we didn't know this for a long time, Judas Priest had played all the same clubs and then Saxon played all the same clubs and then we played all the same clubs. So it was a, a great way of earning your stripes, paying your dues, learning your trade. 
that was our apprenticeship playing for them. And we played a show at the Westerhope Comrades Club and we got paid off, which was like the badge of honour because me mum and dad had been to a show with John Miles who had a few hits in the 70s and ended up playing guitar with Tina Turner. But they went to see him and he got paid off in the place. There was a riot. The place went nuts because the committee didn't like you. You played two sets and after the first set they give you half the money and said, bye, get out, you're too loud or whatever. Speaking of being too loud for the crowd, fist drummer Harry Hill earned a new nickname playing the club circuit. We did a song in fist called You'll Never Get Me Up in one of those, which was in about 1979, quite early for fast double bass drum stuff, but that was the way the song started with this massive drum fill. And we were playing a club called South Shields Legion, which was a very popular rock club. As I started the song, which was the first song of the second set, I believe, there was a guy walking past with a tray of about seven pints of lager on. He got the shock of his life, threw all the beer up in the air, it all came crashing down on his head and everybody else. And he said in the wonderful Geordie twang, bloody hell, that was like Hiroshima going off. And that's where the nickname Harry Hiroshima Hill came from. When we did go to Workmen's Club, it wasn't as the Workman's night it was as a rock night it's like Ashington would be a rock night but obviously there was a lot of men there who were just going in for their paint after work and whatsoever other Saturday night so they would be expecting a club band on and then Steve would roll up with his Marshall stack and him and Les would blast the place down they'd be going oh my god what's this noise and then I would get thrown out the bar because I, I was a female which meant I couldn't do any sound checks or anything if I walked in the, the whole room would go quiet and they all would look at me to see, my God, there's a woman in the bar. You were only allowed if you were the barmaid sort of thing. But obviously I took no notice and still went in anyway. I think a lot of the people did sort of get a surprise, mainly because of the way Les and Steve dressed. Steve would have bullet belts on and, you know, they were dressed in camouflage stuff and would have these payrolls going off in the corner, which did set some places on fire, but we'll not talk about that one. Then I would come on a female singer, all dressed in leather and you know, with quite a powerful voice. And I think a lot of people would just stand and stare because they couldn't believe what they were hearing. The Working Men's Club wasn't the only place to go if you wanted to catch a band. Tyneside was on the map and a whole host of mind-blowing, face-melting acts stopped off in Newcastle to take the stage of one or more of our great venues. The biggest at the time was the City Hall. I would promote a lot of shows at the City Hall, Sometimes I would set them up, hire them, pay them, and it was a scary time. You could make a lot of money, you could lose a lot of money if you chose badly. On one occasion, with Motorhead, I went there with my little Ewa tape recorder, which allowed you 15 minutes of speech, then you had to pull the tape off it, turn it over, and record on the other side. Ridiculous in comparison to the technology we have today. But as soon as I started... Lemmy, and particularly Filthy Phil the drummer, started effing and blinding. And I said, hey guys, if I'm going to put this interview out, because I wanted to help them, loved the band. If I'm going to put this interview out, please keep the language down. So they did for about a sentence, and then they were back to the effing this and effing that. So I says, hey, look, about the language, it, would, it takes forever to edit. Cause you used to do that back in the day with a razor blade, and you had to cut the tape and stick it and glue it all together again. 
So I said, hey, please, just don't do that. And we'll talk about anything you like, just none of the swearing. Well, they kept swearing. So I says, lads, it's been great. Have a good gig tonight. I got up, packed my kit away, and I started to walk out. And the drummer says, where the F do you think you're going? And I said, I'm going to put this back to the radio station and I'm coming to watch you in the gig. And he got up and he wouldn't let me leave. And then we started fighting and Lemmy got involved and he got punched by me and he punched me and Filthy Phil Taylor and I were rolling around the floor and eventually some of his ribs were broken uh, in the tussle. My nose was broken and one of my fingers was dislocated. So... I ended up in hospital, he ended up in hospital, the gig got cancelled, nightmare. I was loathed and despised for about six or seven months by Motorhead fans until they came back and did a, another show for them. And then they tried their best to make it up with me because the Hot and Heavy Express had a massive rock audience. It could certainly use that coverage and we eventually made up again and just prior to his death I had a chat with Lem and there was certainly no hard feelings there. It's uh, what he said was, it's rock and roll, man. And he was right. <laughs> Friday and Saturday nights were made for the legendary Mayfair. It opened on Newgate Street on the 12th of September 1961 as a ballroom used for formal dances, mostly on Saturday nights, and then it hired out to promoters. The Mayfair most famously was the site of Led Zeppelin's debut UK show, having been billed as the Yardbirds. Jimmy Page's band had already split by the time the gig rolled around, and to fulfil the commitment, he drafted in Robert Plant, John Bonham and John Paul Jones calling the new lineup the new Yardbirds, much to the disappointment of the audience. It quickly became one of Europe's best rock clubs, evenings filled with legendary acts taking to the famous stage. Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, Slade, The Sweet, Ted Nugent, ACDC, Thin Lizzy. Name any classic rock act they were guaranteed to have played Newcastle's legendary Mayfair. I was at pretty much every one of the early gigs. And once I got on the radio, I was invited down every time a band was on there. I even did some DJing at the Mayfair for a while, trying to build new bands from abroad, like Y&T, one of our pet bands. Once I was considerably drunk, and I was lying on the floor. But well, as you do, you're chilling. <laughs> Wizard were playing, of all bands. Wizard were on. But there was a good rock band in support, so I'd come down to see them. When Wizard was on, I decided I would become mortal. Mortally drunk, as all my friends did too, if they hadn't pulled within the first hour. And this bouncer came and, and said, get up. I tried to get up, but my head seemed stuck to the floor. So he said, get up. So he encouraged me, which meant he kicked me in the stomach and tried to pull me off the floor. He couldn't do it because my hair, very, very long down to the waist, was stuck on some bubble gum. So he got his pen knife out and just hacked the hair off, picked me up, carried me outside and hurled me on the pavement. And the following day, half my hair, long hair was gone. It was down to my waist on one side. It was about two inches long on the other. 
I learnt a very clever way of wearing a, a jaunty bobble hat on the <laughs> side of my head for probably far too long. Didn't have helped to get me beaten up at school. But the Mayfair, we all loved it. We still love it now. The Tigers of Pantangs, Rob Weir. The world was Monday to Friday then. The shops were closed half-day Wednesday. Nobody opened on a Sunday. It was almost like the world was geared to a Friday night. You put your best Levi's on, your, your, your best Wranglers on, with your bell-bottoms, you know, with, a, with an iron crease down them, and your cheesecloth shirt, your patchouli oil. If it was in the winter, you put your Afghan coat on, and off you went. You went out with, with, with the vision and the intention of having a good time, going out to enjoy some good live music, you know, to have a couple of beers, to meet the boys and girls, you know, your friends. The Mayfair was the final part on a Friday and a Saturday night. It was the final part of a, like a, a pub crawl, really, where you'd start off in, um, in your hometown. We would go to pubs in Heaven and Jarrow, South Shields. You'd jump on a bus because it wasn't metros then, so you'd jump on a bus. You'd go up to town and you'd go to places like uh, City Tavern and Julie's and Trillions, which was the Jubilee then, and you'd go around and people from Walls End would turn up to these places and people from South Shields and North Shields and, and Ashington and Blythe. And you'd get to know them, you get to know your little clique around the town, and then all of those would go to the Mayfair. And the Mayfair, there'd be like 2,000 people. And it didn't matter if there was a band on or not, you'd get 2,000 people. And you could see the people from West End of Newcastle, like from Westerhope and Throckley and wherever, and all the other people from North Shields and us from South Tyneside, as it became. And you just go to this gigantic place, and it was underground. You went down, you queued up outside, and you went downstairs to a ticket booth, and you paid a couple of quid. And then you went down again to where the, um, the cloakrooms were, toilets, and you'd hang your coat up. And then you'd go down a few more steps, and then you'd walk into this gigantic place, gigantic auditorium, uh, ballroom. But you were still on the upstairs level as you went in. So then you could go down again, and then there was the floor. And there were bars all around. There was one, two, the long bar, three, and then there'd be probably another four. So there was something like seven bars in the place, all huge. And table, huge tables and uh, round tables, big dance floor in the middle. And this stage off to the side, which you could look down on from above, and the stage would have a DJ on it. And the DJ was playing this stuff that you'd heard, the Sabbath stuff, the Led Zeppelin stuff. They would be playing other stuff from bands like Journey and Foreigner and Heart. And every week they had some new American stuff would be playing. And at the time it was predominantly rock, I would say. The, the heaviest metal would be Motorhead. Judas Priest, obviously. Again, Black Sabbath. But they were always introducing new stuff. I started to go to the Newcastle Mayfair um, from about the age of 14 because I had, I had a pretty good moustache, which stood me in good stead of looking nearly 18, I think. I used to wear a tweed dog tooth jacket, which I thought made me look older as well. And I had my date of birth because the bouncers then occasionally would ask you your date of birth. And I had that off so I knew exactly what made me 18. I used to go every Friday, so it got to the point where, unless it was a brand new bouncer, you know, I, I kind of knew them all on a, on a nodding acquaintance. It was never in question, I was never asked. They didn't know that I was four years too young. <laughs> Although I, on my 18th birthday, I, I, I didn't actually go in and, and say to them, I'm 18! <laughs> I thought, no, that gives the game away, just shut up. <laughs> just, you, you, you've managed to pull the wool for so long. I remember ACDC as well when there was a fire. It would have been something on the BBC News at like six o'clock saying that there had been a gigantic fire and that there was a good chance that the gig was going to be called off. Because the Mayfair was so low, it was. I think it was originally a car park, it was intended as a car park, like an underground car park 
for the offices above and the shops and everything that was above. Because it was right next to the, the, the big co-op building that was there. And there'd been a fire above the Mayfair. And the fire engines had turned up and the guys had gone in, soaked it all down. And, and, and basically that, that was it, done. But the amount of water they'd used to put the fire upstairs out had ran down the walls and into the Mayfair, like soaking the carpet. The place was like two inches deep of soapy, horrible water. And the news was saying that pretty much it was going to be cancelled. So we thought, oh, well, we'll, we'll go to town anyway and we'll have, we'll have the drink. We always have that. It's, obviously, the Mayfair's going to be closed tonight till they clean it all up. And then the news was going round. The gig was going to happen and the band would play if enough people turned up and wanted to see them. They would just go on, but they didn't care. And we were like, oh, wow, brilliant. Let's just go and see what happens then. So there was this kind of feeling of, well, it won't it. And as we walked down the stairs, we were expecting to see, like, just the little DJ stage and just be maybe a rock night. The whole stage was there, the massive PA stacks, all the big backline, the huge drum kit. It was all there. We were just thinking, well, they were obviously going to play it. I'm pretty sure they played two nights in a row. The place was just like a mud pit. It was incredible. But again, you know, you never forget that. Sadly, the Mayfair closed in August 1999 to make room for what is now the gate. The Evening Chronicle reported, the Mayfair is closing to make way for a new £50 million development. The site will be turned into a multiplex cinema, restaurants, shops and a family entertainment complex. Demolition is set to start in September. The article stated that on August 21st, 5,000 rockers flocked to the emotional final night. To call it a scene would be doing it a gross injustice. The Mayfair's profile grew nationally and it became probably one of the most famous clubs in the UK. A place where people could meet up, listen to bands and maybe form bands themselves. And like the city's other venues, it played a massive part in the development of heavy metal on Tyneside. 